One of the works of prophets of God is to deliver messages to the people of God. Sometimes those messages are individual messages delivered both to the minister and to the congregation. I met a man who was a pastor in a church in northern Colorado. And he said to me, I believe we have a prophet in our congregation. He had been sinning. And some of his church members would come to him and say, you must stop doing this. But he didn't stop. This one man came to him and pointed his finger at him and said, you are sinning. This must stop. He said, it just went through him like a sword. And he stopped sinning. He said, I believe that man was a prophet. I was born again in 1975, taken into heaven twice, merged into the body of Jesus twice, made one with the word of God, God and the Holy Spirit witnessing. There was a strong call of God on my life, an ordination, and I believe it was in two offices, apostle and prophet. God started with me, teaching me in 1975, about prophets. And he took me to every passage of scripture in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, to show me the work of prophets and what they do. And there are quite a few examples in the New Testament of prophets working in the New Testament church. You can find them in the book of Acts. Look immediately, if you will, at Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 21. You will see Agabus, one of the New Testament prophets. This shows us that prophets are working today in the New Testament church. This happened after Jesus arose. If you look at Acts 11, we'll look at this example of Agabus, the prophet, in the New Testament church. Verse 27, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. In Acts 21, God sent Agabus to deliver a message to Paul. We'll look at that. Verse 10. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle 
and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It was Paul's girdle, and that was exactly what happened when Paul went to Jerusalem. There are many other examples of prophets in the book of Acts. Silas was a prophet, and Paul often took Silas with him on ministry trips. Agabus, of course, was a prophet. Several other prophets are named in the book of Acts. One example is in Acts 15, verse 32. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. We can see that prophets are used by God also to help establish the individuals in the faith in God. For they exhorted the brethren. Exhort means to warn and to urge. They exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them basically in the faith. And one of the things the prophets did in the Bible and do today, they carry judgments of God to the church. When I started out in the ministry, God put me on radio by what I think was an angel of the Lord speaking to me a word of God in the night, giving me instruction. This happened on January the 10th, 1980. I was sound asleep when a very loud trumpet-like voice spoke three words into my ear, awakening me. The words spoken to me were these, Hartford, Seattle, KWJS. I jumped out of bed and wrote KWJS on a notepad because I didn't want to get those letters mixed up. They didn't mean anything to me at the time I heard them. But I thought they were probably call letters to either radio or television. I asked God what they were, and I found that KWJS was a radio station. And I turned to God and said, Are you showing me to go on radio? And I said, I wouldn't know how to do that. I heard immediately from God by his spirit call the radio station manager. So that morning I called the station manager at radio station KWJS and told him that God might be showing me to go on radio. And I said, how would you do that? And he said, make an audition tape 29 and a half minutes long and send it to me, and if you fit our broadcasting, we will offer you a contract. I did 
make the recording that morning, put it in the mail that same day. Within five days, I was broadcasting exhortations to the church weekdays for 30 minutes every day. It was very popular instantly. God had given me messages that the church wanted to hear, taking thoughts captive, dealing with destructive thoughts, following God by his spirit. It grew very rapidly. Within a year, I was on radio from Hartford or New York City to Seattle, just as the angel of the Lord said to me on January the 10th, 1980. Everything was growing rapidly. My meetings were increasing in size. I was in Seattle having a meeting at the convention center I got on the bus to go to the airport, and I heard a word from God. Now the foundation is laid. Now we're really going to move. That was very exciting to me. I was speaking after that to a small church group in Hobbs, New Mexico. As I flew from Odessa, Texas, back to Dallas, where I lived, God began speaking to me, and I heard this. The time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. I heard those words all the way back to Dallas. I didn't know what it meant. A few days after that, God brought to my attention four or five big-name radio, television, evangelist-type people and sins that were being committed by each of these people. I tried to get a message to them about these things God had shown me, but I couldn't get the message to them because their own staff was throwing away such types of messages. So I recorded a message on my own radio broadcast, naming that minister by name and telling what God had shown me. Then they got the message, for their own congregation carried that information to them. And the hate mail against me from the congregations poured into our office. So there was really great hatred shown by the followers of those men and one woman against me. If you will look at Matthew 23, you will see this is not unusual. In this, Jesus is speaking to the multitude and to his disciples concerning the scribes and Pharisees, concerning the leaders of the church group in those days. And he said, All their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge 
the borders of their garments, and loved the uppermost rooms at feast, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren, and call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. So there's a strong chastisement Jesus speaks against the ministers of his day. And down at the end of this chapter, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees! Ye make clean the outside of the cup and platter. You look good to men. But within you are full of extortion and excess. Even so, outwardly you appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Prophets are sent to the church, not to the world. 
prophets deliver messages to the ministers, to the elders, to the congregations, to the individuals in the church. And sometimes these messages are judgment messages. In 1977 through 82, I was attending a church in the Dallas area, a church called Word of Faith with Robert Tilton as pastor. He started a television program, and it was a talk show type program. He invited different ministers to be guests on his program. He invited a prophet from our own church group, a prophet named Ava Pickard. After the performance, Ava called me. She was in tears. She said before they went on camera, Bob said, Oh, just one thing, Ava. Don't mention anything about being a prophet because it's not popular. I was absolutely furious with Bob for doing this. And I knew he had killed a prophet by doing it. I made a recording for him, and it centered around this part of Matthew 23. Behold, your house is left to you desolate because you killed a prophet when you stopped Ava from speaking as a prophet. At that time, Bob was married to his first wife, Marty, and they ministered together there at the church. In 1982, God took me out of that church by giving me a dream. Between 1982 and 1991, it got worse and worse and worse, and terrible things happened. Bob and Marty divorced. And then Bob remarried a woman who was, I think, a lawyer, and she said she was an evangelist. And they divorced, and she sued him. And then Bob met another woman later and married her, the third wife. But while he was still at Word of Faith, members of the congregation began to fight against Bob. One in particular filed a lawsuit against him for extortion because Bob had promised them hundredfold return on their offerings, and they were not getting a hundredfold return. A hundredfold return doesn't even have anything to do about the subject of offerings, and Bob misused that scripture. I myself heard Bob misuse it many times. If you will look at Matthew 19, this is toward the end of the chapter, Peter asked a question of Jesus. Verse 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
and everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wives or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. This is not addressed to those giving financial offerings. And yet many ministers do that. Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wives or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold. Those who follow Jesus in order to preach the gospel. Sadly, Bob took this extortion to the greater heights of anything I've ever seen. In Wikipedia, under Robert Tilton, it tells this story. In 1991, I believe it was, ABC Primetime Live presented an expose concerning Bob Tilton. They secretly recorded him on an airplane. They found out that he had been receiving as much as $80 million a year in offerings from his radio TV audiences by asking them to send him their prayer request. When they sent a prayer request, the individual would frequently put money inside the envelope with the prayer request. These prayer requests were being sent to the Word of Faith at Farmer's Branch, Texas. They never did reach the church. They were immediately forwarded from the post office to a bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They were opened by the cashiers at the bank The money was deposited in the bank account at Tulsa. The envelopes were thrown with the prayer prayer request unread, with the prayer request into the trash. They were put in a dumpster in the back alley. ABC News searched the dumpsters and came up with a large number of prayer requests in the dumpsters. After ABC News aired that broadcast, Tilton's following really reduced. But he was still getting something like $2 million a year on his prayer request thing. But members of his own congregation began to rise up against him. Numbers decreased. Lawsuits came forth, described in the Wikipedia article. And his 8,000-seat church was eventually torn down. The land taken over by the city of Farmer's Branch, where they built a youth hockey center. There is not even a sign of a church ever having met at that location, so far as I know. Bob moved from Dallas area to Florida and set up a new ministry and tried it there, tried to do the same type of ministry. And then he sold out the properties he had 
and put them into a hotel in Culver City, California, and moved there. And that's the last report that Wikipedia gives of him. The message I had for him is because you have killed a prophet, your house is left unto you desolate. He lost his wife, he lost his church, he married three times, and he lost each one of the ministries that he tried to establish in Florida. Sometimes prophets have to give messages like this of penalties that are upon the individual. Now, in the case of David, after Bathsheba, after the child was born to Bathsheba, after David had killed her husband Uriah by having his captain send Uriah to the front lines of the battle and then even had him withdraw troops that were in support of Uriah so that Uriah could be killed. After that, God sent a prophet to David. Prophet's name is Nathan. First, the prophet shows David his sin. Second Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. And it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Many times people fail to see their sin. Often they will call their sin mistakes when they are really sins. If we see our sins, we can be saved because it is the Holy Spirit showing us our sins. In 1975, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Joan, you know those mistakes you've been making all these years? Those weren't mistakes. Those were sins. And I gasped. I said, sins? I thought they were mistakes. And at that moment, I was born again and given the Spirit of God. Many people today refer to their sins as mistakes. They made the mistake of 
being attracted by this woman and committing adultery against their wife. They call it mistakes. So God sent the prophet to David to show him his sin, frankly, that he could be saved. But God set a penalty upon David, for though he could be saved, there was a penalty for what he had done, that he would live with the rest of his life. So Nathan said to David, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Here comes the penalty now. Verse 10. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from thine house. Because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. Thou didst this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. That penalty came to pass with Absalom, David's son, who fought against David and tried to get to be king of Israel. And in doing so, he took David's concubines, had sex with them, and the entire nation of Israel knew about this. Verse 13 of Second Samuel 12. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, and thou shalt not die. He put away David's sins, but there was still the penalty upon David, which he had to live with as long as he lived on the earth. Then the prophet Nathan pronounced another judgment from God upon David. Verse 14. Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house. 
So there was a penalty that the child that was of Bathsheba would die. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the life of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night long upon the earth. And the eldest of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken to our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And David said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Psalm 51 records for us the prayers of David that were made because of this situation. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy righteousness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, And my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Then starting in verse 8, David prays, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away 
from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. God certainly answered that prayer. David continued as king until his death. But the penalties as a result of those sins that he had committed stayed with him the rest of his life. And that's the way sin is. You might be forgiven the sin. I know a woman in our church group who had an abortion. And she said she still grieves over the fact that she had killed her son. Sometimes you can be forgiven, but getting rid of the memory of what you did is another matter. Another thing concerning divorce remarriage is at the time of sexual intercourse, the two people become one flesh. I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting about verse 19. Paul is warning young men don't have sex with harlots because to take a harlot and make her a member of the body of Christ? For don't you know that at the time of sexual intercourse the two of you become one flesh? How can a divorce paper from a U.S. court cause you to be separated from that flesh of the other person? I don't believe it can. I think as long as you live, the two of you are one flesh even when you're divorced. And so what if you marry another one? There is another fragmentation. So these are serious things to consider. The U.S. court might grant you a divorce. But how do you get rid of the fact that you're one flesh with that other person? At the time of sexual intercourse, you were made one flesh. And isn't this part of the reason that Jesus spoke these words in Mark 10, warning the people about divorce and remarriage? Let's close with Mark 10. Jesus tells the Pharisees that Moses wrote the paper of divorcement for them because their heart was hardened. And then Jesus says in verse 6, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now concerning this one flesh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Start at verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh? Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. 
Fornication is a sin unlike all other sins. Now back to Mark 10. Let's read again from verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but are one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God joined them together by causing them to be one flesh. Then he says, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, And whosoever marrieth her that is put away committeth adultery. The man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, Paul says the following is a commandment of the Lord. And unto the married I command, says Paul, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. You might do something and be forgiven for sin, but there might be a penalty for what you did, though you are forgiven. And that is the thing we see in David. He was not killed for his sin. God put away his sin. But there was a penalty because of the sin David did. And he lived with that penalty for the rest of his life. Thank you for allowing me to speak this to you today.